Hello and welcome to the NACA podcast. I'm Doug Church and I work at the National Office of the National Air Traffic Controllers Association as the Deputy Director of Public Affairs. In honor of Women's History Month, NACA is presenting the second of a four-part conversation between two incredibly inspiring women in the world of aviation. NACA's own Jamie Sanders, an air traffic controller at Denver Centennial, who is also an experienced pilot, interviewed Major Katie Cook, a third-generation military aviator and the first female pilot in the storied history of the great Blue Angels team of the Navy. In this episode, Cook talks extensively about her military experience, including flying in locations around the globe. She was one of the few female aviators that flew in combat. She flew missions in mountainous Afghanistan and was based at Camp Bastion, a UK-operated airfield at 3,100 feet. Most of the missions were close air support aboard a C-130 with a Hellfire missile rack. She also talks in this episode about applying and then being selected to join the Blue Angels on its Fat Albert aircraft, as well as her interactions with women of all ages and especially young girls that look up to her as an inspiring role model. Here is part two of this conversation between Jamie Sanders and Major Katie Cook. Um, so I did also want to ask you, again, I'm not military, so, and I'm not I'm just very casual about this whole thing because it's just my question. So why not? Um, yeah. <laughs> I did just fly in the United States. I didn't get the opportunity to fly in the, and you've flown all these crazy cool places around the world. Are there any places that stand out to you that were unique or your favorite kind of places? Um, so I really loved Greece. I was in Suda for Suda Bay, Greece for a while. Um, and the Greek, uh, government for the longest time did not approve a low level route around Crete. And when I was there, they finally let us do one and it was phenomenal. Uh, think of like off the coast of Greece and Crete all the way around the island. It was phenomenal. We went and landed in Athens. Um, so that was really cool. Um, I'm trying to think of where else, uh, I would say a, a challenging Thing that some people don't think about flying in the Middle East, uh, being a female on the radio, a lot of male controllers won't respond oh, to no. me due to cultural things. And so we had to, like a lot of times my co-pilot would have to make the radio calls because they just wouldn't respond to me. So that's, <laughs> you know, that, so that, that's the like unique stuff that we had to deal with when we were over there. But yeah, I, I loved flying in Crete. I loved flying in France was phenomenal. Spain was really cool. Um, I, I flew in the UK, but it was usually just like a stop and go. Ireland was a stop and go. They usually had bad weather, but it was an awesome, uh, Limerick is an awesome place to go out in. <laughs> and so if we had to go down for a couple days, you'd want to go there. Um, Italy was really cool too. Um, yeah, so I, I did a lot of flying in Africa too. Djibouti, Uganda is one of my favorite places of of all time and Tebe is where I was for a, a couple months and I'll, I will take my family back there someday because it was such a phenomenal experience. Djibouti was a little bit different. They don't have as good radar coverage over there and the controllers are learning and it's very busy airspace. And so it could kind of be like the wild west sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was, it, it was awesome to get those type of experiences though, you know, um, I mean, I landed in the Azores, like people, people can't say that, you know, and then, and it's just these amazing experiences that I can tell my children as they grow up, you know, and my husband was stationed in Japan. And so he did a lot of the Far East 
um, stuff, Korea, uh, Thailand, uh, Australia. And so he, we kind of got the whole world covered between the two of us. That's so um, cool. So- I mean, just the military, the, I, I hear it from every, everyone, you know, there's a lot of military controllers too. And it's, that was my shot. I should have gone that route. Cause I mean, it, it, everyone sees so much of the world, you know, yeah. serving their country. So it's, it's very cool. Um, I did want to talk about the combat flying too. I, I, I'm so impressed with that. Um, I know that you're one of the few fem- female combat or aviators that that flew in combat. And I just, just think about, um, I knew you flew in Afghanistan. I'm not sure all, the, I know you flew in Africa, but I'm thinking about Afghanistan. It's also a mountainous terrain. And so that just kind of, that whole thing with the combat, the mountainous terrain, and serving the military just seems really badass to me, you know? Um, so I just want to talk about that a little bit. Um, any good, best experiences doing that and what that was like for you? Yeah, so, yep, the airfield that I was at uh, was called uh, Camp Bastion Airfield. It was a UK airfield, um, but it's, it's attached to Camp Leatherneck, which was the largest kind of um uh, U.S. presence in the Helmand province. I'm sure you've heard something like that. So it's kind of one of our most active areas when we were there. Um, yeah, our airfield elevation was like 3,100 feet. Um, and so, yeah, there definitely was mountainous terrain there. Um, and the majority of the kind of the missions that we were doing was the close air support. Um, and so it was a unique C-130 that basically had a refueling pod on the right side. On the left side, we removed that and put a four by hellfire rack on there. And then we had a door, our back left paratroop door was replaced with a derringer door. So it worked very much like a toilet. Like a, so you would open the top part, put the missile in, close the top part, open the bottom part, the missile would come out. And then we would have a laser on the left side that would guide either type of mission missile into the target right and so um being an airplane that could stay airborne for 13 hours um if we pulled back to you know max endurance or whatever and had this capability the munitions that we carried had very low collateral damage um ranges and so you could essentially blow up a target without putting other people at risk that are near that or structures that are near that. Um, And so we were constantly asked to do stuff and the Harrier guys or the skid guys would get so pissed because we would come on station and they would have been there for like two hours, maybe tracking a bad guy or, you know, waiting to get the permission to to drop munitions. And then we'd show up and the controllers, the uh, JTAC controllers, which are the guys on the ground, they would be super excited that we were there and just tell the Harriers to go away and be like, oh, we got, we got the C-130, so we're good. Yeah, you can leave. And so they would get so pissed at us. They'd see us in the chow hall like, oh, you took our, you know, you took our mission and stuff. But um, it was extremely, extremely rewarding um, because, you know, you join the military because you want to serve your country and you become an aviator, particularly in the Marine Corps, to support those Marines on the ground. That's what our entire structure of the Marine Corps is all about are those Marines on the ground. And we have all these supporting elements that support this main effort. And so, I mean, I have a a quick story that I was, um, so because I was the only female um, pilot on our aircraft, our call sign was filth. 
when we were in country. So filth zero two is my call sign. I was the only one. So on boring days, um, when we were over there, we'd mostly just be looking for Intel for the controllers on the ground and stuff like that. And, um, on boring days that we would get to know them. And, and I was on the British, um, uh, I was talking to a British controller. And so we were on a radio frequency that all the British, um, people who were in, in that RC Southwest could hear this conversation, right? We called the TAD. They were on this tactical frequency. And so the guy was talking to me, um, and he was like, so how'd you get your call sign? Um, and so my call sign is, is Pop-Tart. It, it was, you know, it was the, the original story was kind of boring, but this one, so I said it was Pop-Tart and, and he knew that. And he's like, well, how'd you get it before I could respond? Somebody else jumped on and said, you know, oh, it was her stripper name before she found Jesus. (laughs) And so all all of the British guys heard this in all of RC Southwest. And so anytime I go to Chow Hall or whatever, they would like, oh, that's her, that's her, that's her, right? And so, <laughs> so that obviously is not the truth. That's not, that's, I was, I did not have a profession in exotic dancing before I started flying, but you know, that's the kind of razzing and stuff that you get with, with these people, you know, and, and in these connections that you get with these people, but you know, so they get to know you kind of on a personal level and, you know, it, even on a very kind of serious note, my very first time I employed in country, so I, I shot a missile, the very first time was a, a group of Marines that was pinned down by a PKM team or a, or a machine gun team on top of a building was shooting at them. And you could hear it on the radio, like the tick, 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 tick. You could hear the explosions. And the guy was just trying to get out what we call the nine line, which is like the the directions on how to shoot right and so um he's, he's telling us all this and my heart is beating so fast I'm like 26 years old and I'm like these people are going to get injured or killed these Americans on the ground if I don't employ properly right if I don't get this airplane where it needs to be and so we ended up shooting two hellfires we took out the PKM team everybody was good went home to their families thank god well fast forward like six months I'm in a bar in Spain some guy walks up to me and he's like, were you on Filth Zero Two? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, I recognize your voice because again, there weren't a lot of women. I was right. a very specific call sign. Um, and he's like, do you remember that time there was like a PKM team pinned down, blah, blah, blah. I was that guy. And he was like, you guys saved our life. And like, every time I tell that story, I still get chills. And I still, you know, because the reason I joined the Marine Corps, the reason that I was an aviator to support those Marines on the ground. I know that I did that, right? I actually did it. And I have a face with the name and a story with the name. And so it's really, really super rewarding. So that's so that's, yeah, that gives me chills too, for sure. (laughs) I, um, and then you just think about, it's not even just the Marines that you saved, their families. I mean, you you changed lives. I mean, those lives could have been changed forever. So, wow, that's, that's pretty powerful. What was, what was going through your head when you got that call and you're responding to it going into that situation? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lots of things that are going through your head because, you know, obviously we're taught to compartmentalize. Right. And so you, you need at that moment, I was like, I can't fail. Right. These people need the support. I, I can't, I can't fail. But at the back of your head, you're like, I'm about to shoot a missile at people like a live person who's probably not going to be alive after I do this right and so that's kind of a a heavy burden too you know obviously there are 
they were shooting at Americans. So, you know, it's completely justified, but it still is kind of a heavy burden that a lot of people, a lot of Americans don't have to ever deal with, right. you know? Um, but in the moment, you can't get into all of that stuff. In the moment, all you think about is, I can't fail. I'm going to make sure that these people go home to their families. I got to get the airplane where it needs to go. I need to get my wings level in time to get the missiles off the rails at the right altitude, at the right airspeed, all of that. So, um, yeah, it was it was mission accomplishment was all that I could think about at the time. Wow. It's just, I mean, it's just su- such an adrenaline rush even yes. thinking about it because you already got you're already in this combat zone. You're already dealing with these maneuvers and the normal stuff that really is pretty exhilarating for most of us our pilots. And then you add that on top of it. I just, mm-hmm. I love the, the whole combat flying thing. It's just so different from anything I've done. And it just, it just takes everything one step above yeah. the worst situations or the crazy situations can be. So I think yeah. that's really cool. Um, I Thank could probably you. ask about that kind of stuff. Cause it's something I'll never do, you know, but um, very cool. So back to the the Blue Angels thing. You know, you get the call, and now you know you're famous for being the first female Blue Angel pilot ever, which is is kind of a lot. What was that call like, and and that feeling like? Do you remember where you were when you found out? Yeah. So it's actually pretty funny. So you you actually have to go through like a full process to even apply to the team. So there's a paper application that's almost as big as like a college application. There's essays and a picture, letters of recommendation, your flight hours, all this stuff. Um, and you submit that. And then you have to go to two air shows. We we used to call it rushing. We don't use that phraseology anymore, but you're applying. You you go to two of their shows um, in the spring time frame to get to know not only the team, but for them to get to know you, right? Because if you're going to be on the road for 300 days out of the year with these people, they want to make sure that they like you and you like them, right? Um, And so you do that, you do two shows with them and you get to see all of the stuff they go through. You know, in the mornings they get up and work out and they go to school visits and then they go and they brief and then they fly and then they debrief and then they have events in the evenings and then they get dinner as a group. And then they, you know, and so you want to see if you can keep up with that type of lifestyle for, you know, that entirety of the two to three year tour. And so after that, you, if you're in the top two of the people who are um, uh, going for a certain position. So for me, I was going for fat Albert pilot. If you're in the top two candidates, you go down to what's called finalist week. And that's in July for the Pensacola beach air show. So you go down there and you get like fitted for your blue suit. You take your official picture You do a formal interview with all 16 of the members on the team. You get to know their spouses a little bit. And so it's like a pretty intense week. Um, And then at the end of that week, you fly home on the Thursday. And then Friday, you'll call the CEO or who we were referred to as the boss. So you'll call the boss and, uh, you know, he'll, he'll be talking to you. For me, he was like, you know, you're really junior and you could always get more hours and apply again. And so I was like, Oh man, I didn't get it. And I, it, funny enough, I was actually sitting in the room with Mark Hamilton, who was rushing with me. And so he was also gonna, rushing for the Fat Albert position. And so I, I had just watched him get off the phone and they, and he got the position. And so now I'm like, well, since he got it, and now this CEO is telling me like, no, you know, sorry, you're really junior. And then he's like, oh, one more thing. And I was like, yep. And then he put it on speaker and the whole team goes, welcome to the team, asshole. And so I was like, 
uh, and my response was, holy shit. Because <laughs> I was like fully prepared at that point. Like I didn't get it. I'm going to have to apply again. So they actually needed to select two people because uh, one of the pilots had left early, uh, early from his tour. And so they ended up taking me and Mark in the same year. And so that was a surprise and it, it was great. Oh. But yeah, it was, it was pretty funny. That's an intense process. I mean, I honestly yeah. did a lot of pilot interviews for different airlines and I thought that was rough and that was, you know, just different types of interviews, different style, you know, your written test and your, obviously mm-hmm. your sense of stuff, but nothing like that where you actually go through the journey and really get to know people, which makes sense. I mean, when you're talking about the trust that you have in the cockpit and then that whole team d- together all day long, every day for months at a time, I, I get that, but whew, that's, that's intense. Yeah. So I did want to talk about um, your meet and greets. They are so neat. I have a controller that I work with and she took her little baby baby girl to one of those meet and greets and she actually met you and took a picture. And so when I told her, like Kelly said, I told told everyone, I was like, I get to talk to you. (laughs) Um, She said, you know, I have a picture right here and she showed me the picture and she said, you know, this is... I'm keeping this for my daughter as she gets older, she'll have these strong women to look at and be inspired by. And I, I just think that's so neat. And I, how does it feel to, to be that for so many people? So many kids look up to you. Well, you know, it was definitely not something I was expecting, right? Because I, first of all, I joined the military to like support Marines on the ground. I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would be at air shows someday. Right. And so now I'm in the air show industry. Now I'm the first female on this famous team. But I, but I also thought, you know, I'm the fat Albert pilot. I don't even fly jets. They're not going to care too much. And then it blew up. You know, I was on Fox and Friends, CBS This Morning, The Today Show. I was all over the place. And that was mind blowing, right? And, and so now, fast forward, like I'm a role model to, to so many women not just young kids, but like even people older than me, you know, I had women coming up to me being like, I think it's so awesome that you did this. I wish I could have done that when I was your age and stuff. And so it was like a ton of pressure. I remember my very first air show at El Centro and my husband was on the team with me at the time. Again, we weren't married, but you know, I, I remember telling him like, I can't fail. I can't fail because if I do, it's going to be all attributed to my gender, right? It's going to be, well, this is why we don't have a female on the team. You know, it's not, it's not going to be like, oh, she's junior or anything like that. It will be absolutely my gender. And I couldn't let 50% of the population down, right? And so it, it was really, really, uh, it was a heavy load to carry in the beginning. But as I got more comfortable and I got more confident in myself and you know, I, I got to the point where it was like, I fly this the same as the guys they are better than them. You know, like once I got to that point, you know, and confident in my abilities and, you know, I, I loved being able to correct the misperceptions that people had about women in, in aviation in general. So at those meet and greets, I don't know how many times I had little kids being there being like, women can't be pilots. And I would be like, Hey man, I'm a pilot. I'm a Marine. I'm a blue angel. I'm a pilot. Like girls can do whatever they put their mind to, even if there's never been a girl to do it before them. Right. And being able to, you know, correct those misperceptions, not only for little girls and women, but for little boys and men, because 
I really, truly believe that women will never reach equality without the advocacy of our male allies. And so being able to fix those misperceptions on both sides of the coin there was absolutely an amazing experience, um, was a responsibility that I took very, very seriously. Um, and that's why I really enjoyed all the community outreach, probably the most. I'm, I take that back. Flying the airplane was the best thing. The second thing, best thing was the community outreach because of the impact um, that, it, that it would have on the future generation of, of female aviators, for sure. And it, it is. I actually, um, my aunt was uh, the first female commercial airline pilot. And um, Very cool. I remember the same thing. She was just, she did, she walked in that door. She worked so hard every day trying to get that job. And she just kind of didn't realize it was a big deal. And then she got it. And then there was all this attention on her. And I remember she was just like, you know, I'm just another pilot. But um, the way that she went about it was one thing. And I definitely recognized that and kind of followed that when I went on my path. But the other part of it, too, is then when I got in the cockpit in the airlines, at least my generation of pilots, most of the, most of those guys were cool. Like they had no, there was no issue with me being a female or, and whatnot. There were some passengers that may have said something. Mm. But then I, I look at, you know, me getting into it. I didn't really know that that was an issue. Like there weren't as many females. I just didn't know that. And looking at my children now or your children or the children that are seeing these shows, that that's the next generation. They're going to see that that's just a normal thing. And pretty soon we won't be talking about this anymore. It'll just be, we're yeah. all the same. And I can't wait for that day that we're all just the same, but it's people I like agree. get in those, those positions and, and we can all look up to you. And, and so I think it's awesome. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the NACA podcast. I'm Doug Church, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Take care.